And today is Baptism Basics. Now we've done this before. I'm of the opinion that we should probably do it every year. Uh, Talk about baptism. And the reason why I think it's important is because there are a whole lot of churches, theologians, preachers, Christian authors who think it's not important. It's become convenient and easy to leave it out. And in fact, even in restoration churches, it has become less and less of a thing. Uh, I've had horrible experiences of restoration preachers and youth ministers and even elders who don't think baptism should be taught as part of the salvation plan. It's thoroughly disgusting, not to me, to God. So I want to go over the basics. We're doing a whole summer series so that we make sure that the kids are with us in all of this. We've got kids with us, and we want to teach about this. So what I'd like to do, and I've, I'll tell you in advance, there's, if, you, if the men haven't told you, in the men's notebooks, Uh, They have a large print version of that brochure that I've printed and set out, and I need to print out, print and set some more out. But they've got them in their notebooks. So if you need it, you should ask for a copy, borrow their notebook, whatever. What's happening? Mike's not on. You know what? They're back there like waving their arms and doing all kinds of funny things. I should have let them keep going just so you could all see what I got to see. That was entertaining. Still not on? We might be, might have a dead battery. Let's see. It's on now. Testing. One, two, three. We on now? So if you don't have tinnitus, you do now. What was that? Do you know what happened? Okay, if the neighbors call the police, we'll blame it on Jim. How about that? It was probably me. <laughs> He's the elder. You know, it's Jim. Jim, if police rush in here, we're going to point at you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just throw your hands up and look guilty so the rest of us can continue in the service. But I, I do want to let you know that it is uh, I, that baptism pamphlet that I wrote years ago, and is, it's all over the place now. The reason why I wrote it was just because I had some issues going on. It was my, my couple of things. For one, I didn't believe baptism needed was necessary. I didn't believe it. And I had a preacher challenge me on that. I challenged him, read the Bible from front to back and see what it says. Take notes. And he said, I will if you do. (laughs) So there was that. And I was doing that. And when my grandmother begged me to talk to her son, my uncle, about baptism, because he was telling her, you don't need to be baptized. That was trendy even then. That's 40 years ago, approximately. And she was, she was very upset. She'd gone to the elders in the church. They gave her a couple of scriptures, but it didn't work. Talking to him 
with giving him those scriptures. It didn't work, so she wanted me to do something. I wanted to tell her, well, I don't believe it's necessary. And, and that's all because of what happened to me. I had a preacher tell me that he was, uh, that a lady said that her brother died in the hospital, but a preacher visited with him, and so she's pretty sure he's in heaven. And the preacher said, well, if he didn't get out of that bed and get baptized, he's not. Something like that. Like, whoa, what in the world? So that made my feelings all get emotional and made me think, well, I can't do this. I can't preach that baptism is necessary because of the way I felt about that story. The reality is that preacher shouldn't have said that. That's cruel. It's unkind. God's a fair God, and we're not the judge of other people's souls. God is. And it's true. Baptism is necessary, and we have to preach and teach that. But to tell somebody who just lost their brother something so harsh as that, the way he said it and the way he thought about it, was wrong. So I ended up, as I studied scriptures, I learned that baptism is necessary. And I just want to give you the New Testament scriptures that I have on this subject this morning. I almost skipped a whole bunch of them for you. We'll start where Jesus actually deals with baptism in Matthew chapter 3, starting with verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. If you want to be righteous, you need to be baptized. That's what he said. Continues. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the Spirit of God descended on Jesus, symbolic of the connection with baptism. And God said, I am pleased with my son at his baptism. The only person that didn't need to be baptized was Jesus, and he did it, and it pleased his father. Fast forward to the end of Matthew, as Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. Matthew 28, starting with verse 18, he says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, So in other words, I'm the boss of you and everyone else. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus commanded that we're supposed to baptize. If you're his disciples, you're going to be doing this, teaching people to obey him, baptizing them. There's a little bit more in John in a discussion. Some of you have watched the Chosen series and you're fascinated with the conversation that happens between Jesus and Nicodemus. There's a little bit of embellishment that happens, but they try to stick to Scripture. This is Scripture. John chapter 3, verse 5. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Why did he go to him at night? Maybe he was afraid of criticism. Maybe it was the most convenient time. Don't really know. But Jesus said, you must be born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was confused, wouldn't you say, when he said, how does, how does that happen? Can you go back into the mother's womb as an old man? Obviously, that's not what Jesus was saying. So Jesus clarified, you have to be born of the water and the Spirit. Now, there is a lot of controversy over what Jesus meant right here. And the reason why is because people like to say there is a a distinct, different baptism of the Spirit that all Christians will experience. And that's what he's talking about. You've got to have a baptism of the Spirit experience. That's what he's talking about there. That's the only way. The only way you're going to be able to enter the kingdom, you've got to have a Spirit baptism. It's a fascinating thought, considering that if you go back to the beginning when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit was connected to the water baptism directly. In fact, if you go to, it's not up here on the slide, 1 John chapter 5, it says the water, the blood, and the Spirit are all three connected. And what my Bible says is what God separates, let no man, what God puts together, let no man separate. So if there's all three connected, then we shouldn't separate them. And people like to say, well, he was talking about what, what Jesus was saying. This is what people like to argue. Most scholars like to say, well, what Jesus was saying is, first of all, you have to be born naturally. And then second of all, you have to be born of the Spirit. Now, let's, let's roll with that. Let's see if that's what he was saying. Let's just say you are Nicodemus and you're having this conversation. How do I become a Christian? How do I enter the kingdom? And Jesus would say to you, well, first of all, you have to exist. Is that a weird thing to say? Because wouldn't that be with anything? How do I fix the car? Well, first of all, you have to exist. How do I go shopping? First of all, you have to exist. How do I teach my kids to do this or that? First of all, you have to exist. Does Jesus have to say that? Because we're having a conversation. Don't we already exist? And then if he's actually saying, first of all, you have to have a natural, you have to be naturally born, born in the water, amniotic fluid, you know, then that would make people like me, who was born of Caesarean section, not amniotic fluid birth. Am I lost forever because I didn't do the amniotic fluid birth? And here's a little bit of a complication besides the fact that it's absolutely nonsense to try to say that Jesus was saying, well, first of all, a requirement to become a Christian is you have to have a natural birth. You have to be born of your mother. That's everyone. That's a weird thing for him to say. Here you go. Here's an expectation. First, you have to be a human and exist. And then the Spirit. Or is he actually saying born of the water and the Spirit, meaning baptism? Well, here's a little bit of an issue with the idea that he's talking about natural birth. John is the gospel that everybody goes to. When you, when you take Greek class in seminary, that's where you go. They teach you, you want to learn Greek, we'll go through John, you walk through Greek. Why? Because John followed the rules. John had a very extensive vocabulary, so you're going to learn Greek words. 
So if John had a very extensive vocabulary, he would have known there's two different words that Jesus would have used here. One is proferos and one is hudor, but he didn't. One means amniotic fluid, one means just water. He used the word for water. So understand clearly, when Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born of the water and the spirit, he was not saying a prerequisite to enter the kingdom was to be human and exist. That is absolutely ludicrous. And for anybody to call themselves a thinker and come up with that, that ought to make you have second thoughts about who's saying that. And if they're capable of telling you anything insightful about that particular passage, at least. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, we'll pick up where Peter just gave a great message, all the apostles did, and the crowds are listening. Let all, those, let, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You understand, they are all believers at this time. The people that heard this message, which numbered in the thousands, were believers at this moment because it says they were cut to the heart. They didn't pick up stones and try to silence them. They were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? And we'll go ahead and look at verse 38. And Peter said to them, nothing. You believe, so you're saved. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll go ahead and read what Scripture says. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A pastor friend of mine thinks I'm joking. He, uh, he, somebody did one of these social media clickbait things. I'm guilty of clicking on clickbait sometimes. And it said... What is one thing that you were taught that you have never used and will never use again? And he put sentence diagramming. <laughs> you remember that? They don't even teach that anymore. Well, I put on there, seriously, I use it all the time. And he put on there, laugh out loud. He thought I was being sarcastic. I'm not. I actually do the sentence diagramming, and especially with sentences like this. Because it's the way it works. So if all goes as planned, some of you have already been to the fair. If all goes as planned, Stephanie and Peyton and I will go to the fair. We are not going to try to see Trace Atkins. We're just going to go to the fair. And when we go to the fair, things are expensive, right? Absolutely. Did anybody go to the fair and, and buy something? Did anybody? What did you buy? Okay, so name a food item that you bought and tell us how much it costs. Sorry, what's the food? Uh, games. Pair of earrings. Games? Earrings. Okay. So how much did it cost to play a game? Three games. Yeah. It was 20 bucks. 20 bucks for three games. Okay. Three bucks for 20. What'd you do? Uh, okay, two things. What food? What'd you buy? I bought a plate of Kalua pork, two, piece, two scoops of rice, and a potato salad, about that big, on a side, $16, and then I got a $20 bill, I said, how much is a, how much is a drink? $4. For 20 bucks, you got a drink and a plate. A plate. Okay, 20 bucks, yeah. And it wasn't that long ago where you could just go and buy a little something for nothing, you know? Now it's, it's, it's pricey. 
So let's just say he's got 20 bucks. Let's say it's somebody else. Let's say you go to the fair and you got 20 bucks and you say, okay, it's expensive, but I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. I want to drink. I want to play just like Joe got. That's what I want right there. And as you pay for it, you give them your 20 bucks and they give you a receipt and say, thank you. And they don't give you any plate or any drink. And they turn around and walk back and you have nothing. Is there a problem with that? Why would there be a problem with that? Because you gave them 20 bucks for your food and your drink. The preposition for is connected. If you know your sentence diagramming, it's there. And the sentence loses its meaning when you take out the preposition. You can't just take out the preposition and its phrase. So if you are repenting and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, they go together. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. People like to say, well, <laughs> baptism, no, all you have to do is believe. Well, that's not what my Bible says. They were believers, and he said, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, there you go again. They're connected. They're connected. That's the way it works. And that is the first message of the start of the church. I don't think we should change it. Do you? Did, did they know what they were doing? Of course they did. And if you read further, you'll find out that about 3,000 people were baptized into Christ that day. They weren't running around going, saying, hey, I'm good on the first part. I am a human and I exist. And all I need is a Holy Spirit baptism. No, they were actually baptized in the water so they could receive the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Don't be confused. A little bit later, one of the first deacons, his name's Philip, appears in a story in Acts chapter 8. And I'm going to read the whole thing to you. I know it's a little bit tedious, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, starting with verse 26, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So he is a Jew. And was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before the, its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And, they were, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See? Here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Notice what just happened here. He's reading out of Isaiah, 
The Spirit guides Philip to go to him, and he's welcomed into his chariot to explain things. And he explains, this is talking about Jesus in Isaiah. Is there any mention in Isaiah of baptism? No, no mention whatsoever. No illusion, no reference. But he is explaining what this means about Jesus. And then as soon as they move along and they come across water in the desert, the Ethiopian eunuch, there's water. Why can't I be baptized? And then Philip baptized him. Why would this guy be thinking about baptism at all? Because all Philip was teaching him about was Jesus. Does it necessarily mean that if you're going to talk to somebody about Jesus, you will be talking to them about how to live for him And your start of that journey would include being baptized. Why else would the guy know about baptism unless Philip thought it necessary to explain to him? You want to understand Isaiah that's talking about Jesus. You want to have Jesus, you need to know about baptism. That's exactly what happened. Why would God give us this inspiration to have this story there if there wasn't some sense of urgency for baptism? You want to know about Jesus? Learn about Jesus. If you want to follow him, understand baptism must be done, and it's urgent. Look at verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him right then and there. There are some that would argue and say, well, when there's a baptism, because I've baptized people, there's been times where somebody calls and says, hey, um, look, I... I've decided I need to be baptized, and I need to do it now. Now? It's two in the morning, really? Or whatever time it is, I need to. And so we make it happen. And some will criticize that. Well, why would you do that? (coughs) There's got to be witnesses when there's a baptism. Well, look at the story with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. As far as we know, it's just the two of them. Maybe there was one other. But... As far as we know, there was just the two of them, and they didn't have to wait for church on Sunday. They didn't have to wait for a crowd. There's water. It needs to be done. A little bit further, we find an unusual circumstance in Acts chapter 19. It unfolds like this. This is Paul speaking to people, starting with verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And notice this, pay attention, we're going to read further, but pay attention that believing is connected to baptism. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. So notice the progression of events. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I don't know. We don't, what is the Holy Spirit? We don't, what is that? We don't know. Don't have any heard about it. Well, then, what kind of baptism did you have? John's. So they were baptized in the water, but they didn't know about the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means they were dunked in the water this time, not just for repentance, but being baptized in the name of Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There was about 12 men in all. The teaching here is, and don't think that you're going to be doing tongue speaking. We're going to talk about that in another message. 
But don't think that you're going to be tongue speaking just because you're baptized. But understand that this particular passage strongly teaches if you don't know about the Holy Spirit when you're baptized, you don't get the Holy Spirit. There's two main things that Jack Cottrell taught in his great book on baptism. If you don't have a copy, you should get a copy. It will be a collector. There's two things. You need to know that it, baptism is part of the salvation plan. It's not something that you do after you're saved. It's something you do to be saved. And the second thing is you have to know about the Holy Spirit. Those are the two things. You'll grow, you'll, and in your life, you're going to learn so much more as you grow in your faith. You'll learn more about the Bible. That doesn't mean you need to go get baptized because you learned more. But you do need to know it's for salvation, and you need to know it comes with the promise of the Holy Spirit, which was what was preached on the first, in the first message on the day of Pentecost as the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2. Some would say, well, Paul, Paul's a good example of a conversion. I mean, he was anti-Christian. He was going around killing Christians and then became a solid Christian. That's a good example of a conversion right there. I mean, that's a hard conversion. He was a very hard man. Thought he was doing God's work by going around killing Christians and then, boom, you remember? Here's how you remember where this happens. Acts chapter 9, Paul was struck blind. It rhymes. So, Paul retells the story of what happens in his conversion. He was on the road to Damascus when Jesus confronted him, and it blinded Paul. Now, he retells the story two times. So, the story is in the book of Acts three times. And on one of these times of him retelling the story before people who could control his fate, you know, people like judges and lawyers... He is giving this story in Acts chapter 22. Listen to this story, starting with verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, Paul's talking here, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. So God has given Ananias the ability to heal Paul of his blindness. Now understand this. On the road to Damascus, Paul was struck blind, and he became a believer that day because Jesus said, I'm the one you're persecuting, Saul. I'm the one. And by the way, if you don't know, Saul and Paul are the same person. Saul is the Hebrew name, and Paul is the Greek equivalent. And a lot of people think, well, when Saul was converted to Christianity, his, God changed his name to Paul. That is not true. I think it appears 11 more times as Saul after this, if I counted right. Whatever the case, that's not true. It just didn't happen. He was called Saul and Paul after this moment. But whatever, this is Saul, Paul, same guy. He was con converted in the sense that he, was, he became a believer on the road to Damascus. Okay, now I believe, Jesus. Now I believe. How do we know he believed? Because he went where Jesus told him to go. You're going to go, you're gonna, people are going to guide you, but go see Ananias. 
And he went to Ananias. He fasted for days. And then Ananias heals him of his blindness. So he's been a believer for days. And you have to ask the question, since he's been a believer for days, was he saved because he was a believer? He believed in Jesus. Was he saved? Because we haven't heard anything about baptism. Well, let's just read further. <laughs> Verse 15. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Verse 16. And now what, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul had not had his sins forgiven for days, even though he was a believer. He was told to wash away his sins at his baptism. That is what is the normal teaching, the orthodox teaching. It has been for ever since it became a thing in the Bible. That's where you wash away your sins. I know it's trendy to say, no, 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 you don't need to be baptized. But according to my Bible and your Bible, it's when you wash away your sins. If Paul's a good example of a conversion, then let's look at the example. He was not saved until he was baptized. Because how do you get saved without your sins being forgiven? How do, you, how do you get saved without having your sins being washed away? I'm sure you remember the chart that I've drawn on the slides behind me. I don't have it today. Faith is by grace you're saved. Ephesians 2.8, I don't have it behind me. By grace you're saved through faith. So the way it works is it's your faith that accesses the grace. The cross is the grace. We're not, nobody can be saved without Jesus dying on the cross. That's what saves us. But how do you access it? Through your faith. Baptism is a part of that, and it's a very climactic part of that. Let me give you some details you might have forgotten. I just want to have them up here for you again. Here is the Greek word up behind me. That's what it looks like. Here's how you say it. Baptizo. And what it means literally is immerse. That's exactly what it means. I had a conversation with a Roman Catholic this week, actually. And he was trying to tell me, he goes, doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible that you can just pour or sprinkle? <laughs> it wasn't until 753 AD until anyone was baptized. That's the first record we have of someone being baptized by pouring or sprinkling. And if it's 753 AD, what does that tell you about whether or not sprinkling or pouring is biblical? The Bible was long done before 753. So somebody came up with that other than Scripture. It's not in Scripture. So the mode of baptism is dunking in the water. But somebody argued with me, this Roman Catholic argued with me, so it doesn't say somewhere in Scripture, and that's always dangerous to do that. But there is a passage in Mark, you can find it yourself, where the disciples are being criticized because they weren't washing their hands ceremoniously before they ate. You should look at the word used there. The word used there is bapto. It's a, it's a root of baptizo. And it actually means to dip, just like immerse, just a little bit lesser, but to dip. And the way they washed their hands then was they would wash their hands in a bowl. You dip your hands in, you wash your hands. And so the argument is, well, see, you could sprinkle or pour. Were they sprinkling or pouring their hands, or were they dipping their hands in the water? They were dipping their hands in the water. So the argument that sprinkling or pouring came from somewhere in the Bible, it's a very hard argument to take Mark 
Mark's account of his disciples sticking their hands in a bowl of water and saying, see, they were sprinkling or pouring. No, they weren't. They were dipping their hands all the way in the water. That's the word. Baptizo means to immerse. Let me give you something else. Before the Christians started using the word, and I was at Northwest College of the Bible, and I got to give a commencement speech. And when I gave this, it was shocking to me that one of my mentors who heard the speech said, I've never heard this before. So you might be getting some information you haven't heard before, but it was a military term before the Christians started using it, baptizo. It's when a captain would pull alongside a ship and say, baptizo, I sink it. It was a violent death in the water. And so when People read about what happens in a baptism, and and when people heard about it in New Testament times, they understood this was a violent death in the water. So when Paul speaks of it in Romans, it makes more sense if you have all of that. We're going to get to that in a minute. But first, I want to show you, I'm going to show you a little clip of a movie. It's not my favorite movie by any stretch. You'll recognize the, uh, some of you will recognize the movie, some of you will recognize the clip. Here you go. Need sound, Jim. Over in Genesis. I think he said he was innocent, little shark. 
Well, I was lying. And the preacher said that that sin's been washed away too. Neither God nor man got nothing on me now. Come on in, boys. The water is fine. <laughs> Apologies for the uh, inappropriate language that you'll find in the King James. But uh, that's probably the most popular scene in that movie. And it, they spent a good three minutes showing people getting baptized. And it's, the reason why it's funny is because these guys get baptized and, and they seem desperate, like, oh my goodness, I can be forgiven of everything? Well, it's true. But then they go right back into robbing after that and continually sinning. So they don't really repent of anything. They don't change the way they live. So baptism just becomes a thing where like, it's nothing to them. But the reality is, historically, even in this country, even in late history, baptism is the point in which you give your life to Christ. You're forgiven of your sins. You come up new. It's a violent death in the water of an old, the old person. Because one of the things that I get, I've got about, I've got, I've got issues. You should pray for the situation in our facility because um, after I got there, I started getting these messages saying, could you move the baptism out of the visit room? Now, the baptismal was in the visit room uh, because that's where there was plumbing and you could have family come and watch baptisms and do baptisms there. It was all set up and ready to go. But there are people who don't believe in that sort of thing, don't think it's necessary. In fact, I can't name names. This gets recorded and put on the internet, but I do know of one who was at another facility where that person actually helped to facilitate not only removing the baptism from the whole campus, but sealing off all the plumbing so in the hopes that no baptismal would ever be returned. I kept being, getting these messages, and I, uh, I was busy. I'm very, very busy, still very busy. And since I didn't respond, the order was given to take the doors off of the building at the visit room so they could get the bat baptismal out, take the doors off the building where I am, and put the baptistry in there. And so they brought it to me, and they wanted me to know where I wanted it. Well, I didn't want it moved. They move it in a hallway into the education building where there is no plumbing for it. There's no plumbing in my chapel. So I've been in a, in a dilemma for quite a while now with an increasing number of guys. I think we're up to 60 that are wanting to be baptized right now. And we can't go, there's water, because <laughs> we're having trouble making it happen. Pray that we make it happen soon. But when I talk to these guys that are incarcerated, it seems to somehow click with them. It resonates with them more than a lot of people who aren't. They seem to want this idea that I'd like to bury my old self. He was no good. I don't want to go back there. And I've noticed a pattern. Some of these guys that I see get released and then they come back. They go right back to what they were doing. And they want to stop. I don't want to go back to that. I need to start over. And baptism is a very clear marker in your spiritual journey that says, I'm done with that. Now it's Jesus. It was me. I'm not living for me anymore. I'm living for Jesus. And if you can do that with your baptism, you will benefit from the intention God has. Look at Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and following. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Baptism is very symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We die to ourselves, and we live for Him. That's baptism. And if you get that right, you'll get a huge benefit in your journey on this earth of being one of His children. A little bit further in Romans chapter 7, where Paul is saying, I keep on messing up, and the things I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And the things I know I'm not supposed to do, I keep doing those very things. Oh my goodness, what's wrong with me? He says, wretched man that I am, verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. We all mess up. And Paul was giving himself as a prime example, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, and I still mess up, even after baptism. Because remember, it was Romans 6, the, the previous chapter, he talked about baptism. He's been baptized. We learned that in Acts twenty two sixteen, 16. But he still keeps messing up. But then he says, who's going to save me from this body of death? What a wretched man I am. Thanks be to Jesus. The transitional verse, this transitional chapter in, in Romans is chapter 8. And it begins like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The transition happens right there where he talks about how the spirit will carry you through. That's why it's promised at baptism. You can't do this on your own. But with the spirit of God in you and Jesus at the right hand of God, you can. I'll give you another passage, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. Well, what if you're not baptized? You haven't put on Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and following. Stay with me, because some people like to say, well, preacher, is there a verse that says baptism saves? Yes. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been using the English Standard Version. That's what I preach out of most of the time. I use other references, other versions when I, have, when I think it's a, a better wording. I got to tell you that the English Standard Version is one that does not have to have a footnote because it translates very well. But I'll show you a footnote that will appear in some of your translations. You'll see it come up behind me, and that's for the word appeal. Look on the screen behind me. That's the Greek word hepeirotema. And that word means request or appeal. So when you're baptized, you're saying to God, please clean me. Please clear my conscience. That's what you're doing. It's an appeal. It's a request to do that. Make it go away. Bury that. 
But some translations have, in recent times, used the word pledge. And I find it interesting because I haven't found another Greek writing. I can't find it in any Greek literature where that word is translated pledge, except in some Bibles. Because some people want to say it like this. They want to say that when you're baptized, you are saying, I promise Jesus I'm saved. That's why I'm being baptized. Is that what this says? He's saying, I beg you, save me. There's a difference. I'm already saved, so I'm being baptized, or I need to be saved. I'm begging you. See the difference in changing the words? It's, it's actually a very sick thing that people play with Scripture like that. So some translations don't even use a very good translation. They'll put it in a footnote, so if you happen to be a good Bible student, you'll go down and you'll see. So... Um, in fact, this is where I go. If somebody, wants, if somebody says, hey, have you seen this new translation? Yeah, is this a good translation? If I don't know, I will turn to 1 Peter 3.21 and see if they messed around and put a word in there that is not translated anywhere else except in manipulated scriptures. And they put that word pledge or promise. Okay, so I've given you um, some interesting information. I want to tell you something that I learned when I was, I, got, I had the privilege of teaching and preaching for Christ in Youth for 14 years. And it's a big organization, and maybe we'll take some of the kids here to some Christ in youth, youth functions in the future. But I got to teach this class, and in this class I was teaching on baptism. And as I was teaching on baptism, I was teaching on different things, but as I was teaching on baptism, they'd brought a youth minister in who came from a church that didn't believe you need to be baptized. And so he argued with me in the class, and I said, I'm glad you're doing this, because the class was on how to handle college uh, stuff. They're going to try to warp you when you go to secular universities, and I was teaching in this class how to defend against these things. And he came in there arguing with me, and because he brought a bunch of students himself, he, next thing you know, this class is swelling in size. People around in, in Christ and youth, they're all talking about, hey, there's a guy teaching, and then there's a guy challenging him. There's arguments and debates going on every day in the class. So we got this debate going on about baptism in the class. And, the, and there were so many students in my class, I hadn't prepared for that many. They, do, they told me only so many were going to be there. So I need to go make copies. So I go to the, um, the business office at the, this is um, in Bolivar, Missouri. This is called, South, I think it's called Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Bolivar Missouri. Anyway, I go into their business office. And as I go in there, I, they said, yeah, you can make copies. Use that one over there. There's somebody that they're making copies right now. Just take it off and put it back on just like you find, found it. Okay, so I go over, take the, there's like a book thing they had on there. They were making copies, you know, with a binder. And I took it and I set it aside and I made my copy so I could have curriculum for the extra students. But while my copies are being made, I look at the material that they were making. And it was about baptism. I thought, well, what does this Baptist University teach about baptism? So I read about it, and it said, what does, something like, what does the good preacher do when members come to your church who say they've already been baptized at another Baptist church? Because the Baptist church today teaches you're only baptized to become a member of the church. So then the question is, Okay, well then, what if they come from another church and they've all already been baptized? What do you do? 
And the answer baffled me. But I took, I made photocopies of it for myself. I can't find it today. But it said, the good preacher will do what the local congregation tells him to do. So in other words, baptism is a play toy to be used in whatever church, however the church wants to use it. You can make them be baptized or not, depending on whatever the local church decides. Really? Baptism is that insignificant? A caveat to this story is that I ended up baptizing a bunch of extra kids that year at CIY. They were in that guy who was arguing with me that you didn't need to be baptized. They were in his youth group. And the really funny part is, he was the lifeguard that had to let us into the pool and watch me baptize his students into Christ. God is good, isn't he? So let me, uh, let me wrap this up here. What do we know about baptism? Let's put it all together. This is the so what. First of all, the only person who didn't need to do it, did it and said, we all must do it. That's Jesus. Second, some people feel it is not necessary, but the Bible teaches it is. I'll go with Scripture. Third, in biblical baptism, one is, and here's a list of things. One is buried in Christ to rise anew, clothed with Christ, forgiven of sins, and that means saved, promised the indwelling Holy Spirit, and obeying God's command. If you're baptized, you're obeying His command. And the fourth thing here is baptism is an urgent matter of salvation and the start of a new journey with Jesus as Lord. This is not something that you will hear preached on television. It's not something you're going to hear on the radio. It's not something that's trendy. It's not going to be in your most popular Christian books. It's not even going to be in most churches, but it's in your scriptures. And it's what we must teach. It's what we must preach. It's what we must believe. And it's what we must practice. And after all of this, I have to ask the question, what about you? In your relationship with Christ, what about you? Have you been baptized? Did you know what you needed to know? That it's for salvation and comes with the promise of the Holy Spirit. You know that answer. Dan's going to come up and offer uh, some words for you before we sing our song of decision, but let's pray. God, thank you for giving us your word. We wouldn't know how to figure out life without it. Thank you for allowing us to be in a church full of believers that love you and love your scripture. Help us to adhere to it and please you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.